please forgive me, but I think Master has done a fairly good job through me, and I'm grateful for it. But this is not a farewell eulogy. It looks like <laughs> it looks like I'm stuck, and you're stuck with me for another six years. Anyway, that's what Augustia prophesied, and um, well. <laughs> <laughs> Let me read to you. I was going to read to you today from the book Yogananda's Salient Characteristics. And, uh, no, thank you. In fact, I've got to have a drink. <sighs> it may be interesting to learn about some of the salient characteristics I observed in Paramahansa Yogananda during the years I lived with him. I will number them here for convenience. One, the outstanding trace I, trait I observed was his complete absence of ego. When I looked into his eyes, it was like looking into infinity. One time Debbie Mukherjee, a disciple from Calcutta, said something to Master about his humility. The guru replied, how can there be humility when there is no consciousness of ego? A perfect example of his freedom from ego is the story I'll tell in the next chapter about a certain judge. My point just now is that Master would accept any insult and never be such, and never be Narayani. She doesn't know English. I wrote stet, which is a proofreader's mark for Reinstate what you've crossed out. So she wrote, and never be stepped by it. <laughs> um, I misremember this one. As you'll see, he accepted that judge's withering contempt with utter good cheer. Now, we can't get rid of the ego by the ego. Master told me the story of a man who was being bothered by a, a demon. And he, read it, he had read in the Shastras that if you will say a certain mantra over a uh, little powder and throw the powder on the demon, it will not be able, it will disappear. And so he did this, and he threw the powder on the demon, and the demon laughed at him. He said, before you could even say your mantra over the powder, I got into that powder myself. And... Uh, the meaning of this is that the very ego which we are trying to get rid of is already infected by the delusion of its reality. And you have to, that's why you need a guru. It, the ego will always find ways out, but we must do our best. The attunement with the master is that which lifts us out. In the, in the uh, Bible it says, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. By received him, it doesn't mean, yeah, yeah, I believe in him, right sign on the dotted line that you're a Presbyterian. It means receive him into your soul. Be so in tune with him that his consciousness becomes yours. Remember what Master wrote in Autobiography of a Yogi about Master Mahashai, that he, his attunement with Ramakrishna was so deep that he never even considered his thoughts his own. This is what we 
need to do. And the egotist and the worldly person would say, well, that means surrendering myself. The truth is you aren't yourself. The ego is a bunch of self-definitions borrowed from others. I'm an American. I'm a man. I'm uh, uh, penniless. Okay, I am. Um, <laughs> I'm living in Ananda village. I'm uh, uh, an arrogant bastard. Um, whatever it might be. <laughs> but um, these are are f these are not our true self. We borrow these from others' opinions of it. So when we attune ourselves to the ego, uh, to the to the soul of a master, we take on his consciousness. But you remember what Master wrote in Autobiography of a Yogi, that he and his guru were completely different temperaments. One was all wisdom, the other was all devotion. And yet he said that in, tunement, in attunement with Sri Yukteswar, he developed in his devotional approach to God. So what the guru helps you to do is not become like him. It means that from his level of freedom from ego, you can develop your own nature. You know, it's a very interesting thing to contemplate. When Master added ever new to that definition that Swatanjali gave us, God is ever, uh, ever existing, ever conscious, ever new, bliss. That new has a very important significance. That bliss is expressed in a particular and different way in every human being. And really, as I've said before, this is our reason for loving everybody. Because everybody really only wants that same bliss. But you will express it differently from me. And that's why so many people say, well, this saint isn't like that one, as if it were a deprecating thing. The saints are of an infinite number of types, and yet they all love God, and they all are in his bliss. So we must reach that point in ourselves where we are in tune with the soul which has no self-definition, and then by attunement with the guru, he lifts us into attunement with our true self. But we must do our part, and therefore it's very important always to think this is the most important delusion that we need to get rid of. It's the central one to which all other delusions are tied. So we have to get rid of this thought that I am separate from other people. Now, that we can do the more we diminish our own importance. And if somebody insults you, don't get all up on your high horse. Say, thank you. If you have an opportunity when people praise you to say, well, God is the doer, do that. He is the doer. Always try to shift the uh, praise or the blame away from yourself, and you will come to realize in time that you are just a part of this great play of God's. In the uh, Patanjali, it says that when you develop these qualities of non-attachment to your own reality, then you begin to remember your past incarnations. When you're not attached to this body, you remember all the other bodies you were in. So to get rid of the ego is to help us to remember who we really are.
So practice this every day. Never get offended. Thank people. There was this saint that Master talked about who he had a critic. Every time the uh, saint did anything, this critic would always point out the, uh, the downside of that. And uh, one day a disciple came to the guru exultingly, saying, your enemy, the critic, has died. And the master wept. He said, I've lost my best friend. He was the only one who dared point out my faults. So think of everybody in those terms. They are not your enemies. <coughs> they are all your friends in different guises. And you'll be amazed how when you have that attitude that even complete strangers will come to you and want to help you. You know, we live in a world of magnetism. And the kind of magnetism you put out, people can't define it as, oh, that's that kind of magnetism. But somehow, in your presence, they will feel more like uh, um, um, helping you or doing things for you. It's, it's really amazing. I had an interesting, I've talked about this before, and I don't want it to go to her head, but if it can, it's gone to her head longer ago. <laughs> that was one time I called Assisi and told Anand and Kirtani that I just couldn't come to Italy that year. I was too ill, and it just wouldn't, wouldn't, my body wasn't up to it. Well, Nandini happened to be in the room. So she took the phone, and she said, would you like to give a launch in Milan of your new book? I said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how, but she, she has that incredible magnetism of making you want to say yes. <laughs> so against my own will, just that simple sentence, and I said, okay. And in fact, I did give the launch, and in fact, it was a great success, and uh, so everything worked out fine. But you know, you're the kind of magnetism you have, you'll find that people respond accordingly. Some people that, no matter where they go, there's always somebody ready to growl at them. And other people, wherever they go, they smile at them. I remember this wonderful time I was in Paris, and it was my birthday, and I wanted to go to a concert. And uh, you all know the story, but I'll tell it anyway. There may be one newcomer here. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they were closing the door for this concert. And I said, but it's my birthday. I said it in French. And she, uh, the man said, oh, well, then please come in. Happy birthday. So there was no room in the audience. And uh, they put me up behind the altar. And so I was facing the audience. Well, it was a blissful experience. And I was very grateful to be able to hear it. But later on the metro, their word for subway, a little old woman came to me. And she said, do you remember me? I said, well, not exactly. And she said, but I was in the audience. There were 700 people in that audience. How she thought I could remember, I don't know. But you know, it was because I, she felt my joy in that music. And somehow it made a contact with us, uh, between us. And she sat down and told me problems she was having with her daughter and all sorts of things. Somebody I didn't know from Adam, or I should say Eve. But uh, if you put out the right kind of magnetism, you will find doors opening for you everywhere you go. So remember, if you can diminish the sense of ego, 
the soul will be able to come through you. You will be able to do things. So many people, they, they will spend months trying to figure out how to write one poem. But if you get the ego out of the way, you can accomplish a thousand times more because things are done through you. I remember in Hollywood Church about 1955, and uh, some woman came to me, uh, greeted me after church, and said something about what a nice sermon that was, and I, I said, well, God is the door. Oh, really? <laughs> As if I knew it was good, I didn't know it was that good. <laughs> no, that's not what I meant. <laughs> but if you give God the credit for everything that you do, you'll find that you feel free and uh, you will be able to do it better. So keep that thought in mind. That was the wonderful thing about Master. I remember one time Boone wrote him a letter and uh, he really took Master to task out of his own delusions. And Master afterwards, when he saw him again, he said, you should take up writing. That was the best letter Satan ever wrote me. <laughs> but he meant it. He wasn't talking sarcastically. There was no ego in Master. And another thing that I was amazed at, here these great masters, so wise, so far above all of us, and yet he had such perfect respect for everybody. It was an impersonal respect. The respect he showed that judge, his unwillingness to let Debbie criticize a man for being a little under the weather. This one time at a function, it was quite a funny function. I'll tell you a little bit about it. There was a, a disciple of Vishnu Ghosh who was a brother of Master's. And uh, he came and um, sort of wanted to be a guest, so Master put him up. He was only be going to be there two days. Well, two weeks later, he was well ensconced. <laughs> and uh, at that point, he complained that the food was too Western for him. So Master just sent him food from his own kitchen. And uh, then there was a big function, and this man decided he wanted to be, he was a boxer, but he wanted to be a dancer. And he danced the way you'd expect a boxer to dance. Agile on his feet, but clumsy as a bear. <laughs> and uh, he was supposed to be a hunter, um, chasing a deer, hunting a deer. And uh, he just sort of lumbered about the stage. It became a, uh, well, you could either be embarrassed or his master and I were seated next to each other, and the tears were <laughs> rolling down our cheeks. It was such a funny spectacle. And um, one time the man strode down to the, to the um, front of the stage and apologized for the orchestra. It wasn't keeping time with him. <laughs> and then from then on, every time he went by the orchestra... <laughs> 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 Finally, after an eternity, <laughs> the, deer got the deer got it in the neck, so to speak, and <laughs> it died. And you thought, thank God, and the audience was sort of mopping its brow. <laughs> but we forgot there was still the hunter. <laughs> and the hunter and his uh, went into a sort of a victory cakewalk <laughs> in which he took this deer on his shoulders and was... It was the funniest spectacle 
I've ever seen. And then at the, at the end, um, we saw somebody in the orchestra going like this to the sidelines, and the curtain began to <laughs> descend. And this man had been standing there proudly in a victorious stance when he looked over. <laughs> All you could see that was that look of fury, and then it got down to his knees, and you saw these <laughs> legs striding over to the side to give a piece of his mind. It was so funny. But afterwards, when he was complaining about the way he'd been treated, Master said he understood. And he did understand. The beautiful thing about Master was he could see everything from the person's own point of view. And so quite seriously he said that. But at that time there was an Indian there who was quite drunk. And he was sort of throwing his arms around Master in this familiar fashion. And Debbie said something to him in Bengali, because the Indian wasn't from Bengal, about the comedy of this scene too. And Master said, don't. And he, he uh, just treated the man like a, uh, a dignified person. But it was so wonderful to see this absolute respect that he had. Even the person he'd found so funny, he could respect him from his own point of view. And he did understand his situation. Well, this was the wonderful thing that I found about him. I have not seen that level of respect in most people. They always will find some sort of way of comparing, yeah, but he's good at this, but I'm better at that. <laughs> like that, trying to top them and so on. Master had none of that. He also had an impish and utterly delightful sense of humor. This trait may be seen in some of the jokes he told, many of which he'd heard from others. But the one time, <coughs> I, I remember him laughing at the, he said, your teeth are like stars. They come out at night. <laughs> <laughs> and he just was so, he was really, he laughed hard and heartily. And he told this story about the, the uh, Irishman and an Englishman and a Scotchman. And the three were drinking whiskey when a fly landed in each of their glasses. The Irishman simply sloshed his glass a little sideways, losing a fair amount of whiskey along with the fly. The Englishman carefully flicked the fly, but the Scotchman squeezed the fly. <laughs> <laughs> and the way Master said squeeze, it was sort of a chuckle of absolute glee. <laughs> you think of Master as very serious and so on. He could be when he wanted to be, but he could also, he could make you laugh from the soles of your feet. <laughs> there was a story that he didn't, I don't know that he had told, but it's too good a story not to tell in this context. <coughs> there was this woman coming through customs in New York, and uh, she had a suspicious looking bottle. And the customs officer said, what's this? It's only holy water, your honor. So he sniffed it. Ah! As I thought, Irish whiskey. Glory be to God. A miracle. <laughs> well, that's the kind of joke Master absolutely loved. <laughs> you know, a sense of humor and fun and so on, it's a part of bliss. 
I've often heard, you remember, Master said that Sri Yukteswar, when people asked him, why did God create the universe? He said, um, he, he leave a few questions to be solved in the divine. Okay, that's a good answer. The scriptures have another answer, that the spirit wanted to enjoy itself through many. But then I think people in prison, people with cancer, people suffering from broken hearts, all the pains, as Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, get away from my ocean of suffering and misery. And yet, there is something, and it occurred to me not long ago, that the, the real explanation, the best explanation, that satisfies me the best, let me put it that way, is uh, that the nature of bliss is to want to expand itself. I think that it's the nature of bliss to want to create and then withdraw into a night of Brahma, then create again. It's the very nature of spirit to want to create itself and then withdraw and then create again. It makes sense to me because the more blissful I feel, the more I feel like, like uh, expanding that bliss, expressing it, not hiding it in a, in a cave somewhere. So anyway, um, take that as you like. <laughs> I remember he, he, uh, when he came into our dining room, well, you know, men are not very good. They need women around. Men are not very good at keeping things neat. And uh, let's face it, that dining room was pretty much of a mess. There was one chair he could sit down on. <laughs> and... He looked around and he said, well, it could be worse. <laughs> but so many people talk of him uh, as a stern disciplinarian. He wasn't. He was absolutely lovable and loving. But he was kind. He was forgiving. But with disciples, yes, he did try to help them to understand. And he sometimes realized that just as if you have a child who's crossing into the street, you don't say, now, Johnny, come back. You might get run over. <laughs> you take him by the scruff of his neck and pull him back and whop him a couple of times on the bottom to make sure he doesn't do that again. And it's not out of anything but love that you do that. And so it is that he sometimes, with his disciples, had to be stern. But he wasn't stern. He told me, I just wilt when I have to treat people in any way except lovingly but it's the only way he'd get his message across. He wouldn't have been true to his job as guru if he hadn't been that way sometimes. He understood others from within themselves and not as others do from outside. There was a young disciple, A.B. George, whose talk was rather, you might say, salty, and who didn't show the usual respect for his guru that we all did. Such has been, had been his upbringing. He would actually sit in a chair in the master's presence with one leg over the armrest, the sort of thing you and I wouldn't dream of doing. But master saw behind that facade, after some particularly unusual display of what in other disciples would have been blatant disrespect, he embraced Abby with a loving laugh. He just took everybody as he was, 
and treated everybody accordingly. But you know, I remember, um, I went to a, a bar mitzvah. I'm not Jewish, but I was invited to do the postures for a bar mitzvah in Beverly Hills. And uh, so I did the postures. Then a Beverly Hills psychiatrist, and I think you have to say that probably all of them are atheists. And uh, anyway, he was grilling me, trying to make fun of what I was doing, this yoga stuff and so on. So I tried to impress him by telling him about certain miracles that I'd seen. And uh, I could see him mentally writing down in his, in his diary, let's see, I can see this patient on Wednesday at 11. <laughs> but uh, anyway, um, I didn't impress him. When I saw Master next a couple of days later, Master said, by the way, when you're with atheistic and materialistic people, don't talk of miracles. And I said, you knew. He said, I know every thought you think. It was an absolutely wonderful thing. Some people were embarrassed by that. I was very grateful, because then I knew that I, he would always set me straight if I wasn't thinking right. Mainly his discipline of me was for my teaching. He would try to help me to become a, a good teacher. One time there was somebody at the Hollywood church, and he was not a sincere person. And I mentioned to him that I was going, going to be giving the class next Wednesday. And the man said, oh, in that case, I'll be sure to come. Well, in that case, I knew he'd come anyway. And I just didn't want to accept that insincere flattery. So I said, well, would you be so good as to check people's pockets for vegetables as they come in? <laughs> it was not a dignified thing to say. And Master, I used to serve him lunch when he had guests. And Master, when the guests left, he would, we would sit and talk for a while. And Master said, <coughs> by the way, when you're with congregation members, don't talk about vegetables. It isn't <laughs> dignified. <laughs> but again and again, he would show that he knew all our thoughts. You know, James Culler was coming from, from Phoenix to Encinitas to be with Master. And James was, Master said, believe it or not, he said, he'll get liberation in this life. I don't know how, but Divine Mother says so, so it must be true. <laughs> anyway, James was on the highway, and it was late at night, and he was getting hungry. And all the restaurants were closed. And finally he came to a restaurant, and he went in. All they could serve him was hamburgers. And he thought for a moment, he thought, well, I'm hungry. Oh, well, he won't know. So he ate a couple of hamburgers. So at the end of his talk with Master, Master said, by the way, when you're on the highway late at night and <laughs> you come to a place that has nothing but hamburgers, better not eat anything. <laughs> but stories like this became absolutely commonplace. He, one time Ju Boone and Norman were in a bus going down to Encinitas and talking as sometimes young men do. And... Uh, Master met them at the gate, and he quoted to them everything they had been saying. He said, you've come here to forget those things. And he really gave them a stern lecture. So um, some people said it wasn't safe to be around him. I said it was... <laughs> <laughs> I said it was absolutely wonderful, because you knew that you couldn't get away with anything. That's not it. I didn't want to get away with anything. 
but I knew that he would always be there to tell me when I had somehow fooled myself into thinking something was right. I remember he didn't always play that game. Sometimes um, I said, uh, you know, I came to him much too intellectual. It had been a sort of a facade that I had uh, put, uh, put on by uh, um, being in this country and not being able to adjust to the culture and so on. And I found that I was intelligent and I could beat anybody in an intellectual argument. So I began to put on this facade of intellectual pride and it didn't suit me and it wasn't a good attitude. And he wanted to cure me of that. And uh, so, <coughs> what the, what was I talking about here? Can you think? That you didn't want to get away with anything and he always corrected you about it. Yes, I, I, he gave me work to do on the magazine, writing articles and so on. And if you read the old magazines and come upon the name Robert Ford, that's me. <laughs> Anyway, um, I, I, one time I became quite upset with him. I said he wants me to become, to develop more devotion and leave this intellectuality. And he said he's giving me intellectual work. And I, I, uh, I got upset. Then one time I wrote him a note and I said, sir, pl please forgive me. That's all I said. He phoned me. He said, uh, your letter is absolutely incomprehensible. <laughs> <laughs> and then I told him and he said, Living for God is martyrdom. That's all he'd say. But you know, I came to understand that balancing the two is essential. He didn't want me to become stupid. He wanted me to keep my intellectual sharpness, but he wanted me to balance it with devotion. So it's not as if we have to penalize one part of our nature to develop another, but I found that devotion is really the only way to go. There's that lovely story of uh, Sarvabhauma, and Chaitanya. Chaitanya was the Chaitanya Mahaprabhu who began the mantra, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, etc. You know it all. And uh, he moved to Puri. And um, there was a, a scholar there, Sarvabhauma. And he saw this shining young man always getting people to chant God's name. And uh, in fact, Master told this beautiful story of of uh, Chaitanya singing and getting everybody into singing God's name. And a washerman came up and shouted at him, what are you doing wasting everybody's time just singing like that? Be practical, get something done with your lives. And Chaitanya said, you may be right, but just join us once in the song. And so he joined them and sang this mantra once and he dropped his laundry and began singing God's name and left everything. And he came to, they came to the man's, to the washerman's wife. And she started in on a tirade against him for leaving the work and just sitting like this. And the husband said, dear, it's all right. Just try once to sing with me and then I'll... <laughs> and she didn't. She dropped everything. And so his magnetism for attracting people was incredible. Magnetism finally is everything. Anyway... Sarvabhama, when he reached Puri, was looking at this young man, so bright, so shining, and yet apparently ignorant of the scriptures and didn't seem to show any interest in scholarship. And to him, it was the only thing. You have to 
know the scriptures, you have to be able to quote the scriptures, you have to have, be able to make learned discourses on the scriptures. So he offered to teach Chaitanya. And Chaitanya was very grateful to him, and he said, well, I'd be happy to learn anything you can teach me. And so Sarabhama took one passage of scripture and interpreted it in 25 different ways, which was a fantastic feat. Um, they don't think in an Aristotelian way there. It's not either this or that. You think, what can I add to this? For instance, um, God is love. Well, that love can be expressed to children, to your wife or husband, to your parents, to strangers, to the guru, to God. So every truth, the more central the truth, the more its applications in this world. And so um, he, in his feat of coming up with 25 different interpretations of this passage of scripture, um, it was a phenomenal feat. And Chaitanya said, well, that's amazing. Amaz congratulations. Let me see if I can come up with any more. He came up with 80 more. <laughs> and Sarvabhama just fell at his feet. He said, you know so much more than I. And uh, again, that's such an interesting variant on our Western dogmatism. Because the more, in, the more truths you can find from one central truth, the wiser and better you are. Anyway, <clears throat> so the understanding of truth and of people and everything from inside, that's where real understanding comes. Master said a scientist can examine the atom from outside, uh, but a master, a yogi, can understand it from the inside. And you can't say, this is what the in American Indians used to say, you can't understand a person until you have walked a mile with uh, a mile in his moccasins. This is the truth. Until you understand a person from his point of view, you can't really have a you don't have a right to judge him in any way. Each one of us has his own point of view, and this is the absolutely incredible aspect of God. Center everywhere. Circumference nowhere. That truth is everywhere, and it can be explained in different ways according to each point. It's just thrilling. So this disciple, A.B. George, was an example. But how many times did I see him? Always he knew us from inside. He one time said to somebody, you have a sour taste in your mouth, haven't you? And that person said, how did you know? Master said, because I'm as much in your body as I am in this body. And I remember going around the desert with him when he was working on the Gita, editing it. And uh, he would have his hand on my arm for stability. And sometimes he would just sort of sway and almost fall, and I'd have to catch him. And he said one time, I'm in, in, I'm in so many bodies. It's hard to remember which body I'm supposed to keep walking. <laughs> but that state of consciousness is hard to imagine. That's why it's impossible for the ego to really understand it. One thing to get out of this ego consciousness, when I used to try to meditate concentrating at the point between the eyebrows, I would think, now, from where do I look at it? 
Do I look at it from below? My eyes are below, my body's below. Or do I look at it from above, from the brain? And uh, it was always sort of a m mystery to me. But I've come to understand the answer is to be centered in the medulla. The medulla is the seat of ego. That's why when you're proud, you, your tension back there draws your head back. And uh, if you can be centered at the ego and look forward at this point, then you move that energy slowly forward till everything that you do becomes centered in the positive pull of this same center, the point between the eyebrows. What is there about the point between the eyebrows? It's behind that point is a certain point in the frontal lobe of the brain where ecstasy is experienced and superconsciousness. And a master will do everything with this as his center. And a worldly person will do everything with the medulla as his center. So the more you practice this looking forward from your uh, egoic center toward that center, the more you will find your energy being centered here. And really, you begin to feel yourself. Everything that you do seems to be coming from this center. There's a feeling of bliss and expansiveness in that that is very delightful. So always just feel, you know, I remember when I first felt that. I felt joy at the point between the eyebrows. What I used to do was set my lunch aside at 12, then go meditate for half an hour, and then have lunch at 12.30. It was cold, but okay, at least I'd gotten to meditate. And uh, one day I was meditating, and just almost at 12.30, I felt this sudden feeling of great joy at the point between the eyebrows. And I thought, well, this is so obviously the right, the truth, I'll never forget this. And so I said, okay, I'll go to lunch. And uh, I didn't get it again for a long time. I'd say whenever you have an experience like that, forget everything else. Try to deepen yourself in that experience. Don't presume that it'll be yours now that you've gotten it. You get little tastes, like if you're going from California, from Los Angeles to New York. You come to Banning and there's one advertisement for a hotel in New York. But you've got a long way to go to before you reach New York. The closer you get to New York, the more the advertising is about New York. And finally, as you come very close, suddenly everything is about things in New York. And so on the spiritual path, you get a few glimmers here and there and there, but they're very few. And... Uh, be grateful for them. Don't, don't take them for granted. And finally, they're all around you. And then you reach New York. The, the beginning of the spiritual path is uh, some experiences in the beginning to hook you. And then no experiences for a long time. This is known as the middle ground. Then the experiences begin to come. But... Uh, when you have them, be grateful, but remember Master's words. This path to God is not a circus. It's a matter of giving, not a matter of experiences. There was one woman who came to the center in Boston, and right away, without any effort or preparation, she saw through the walls, she saw the thousand-petaled lotus, and uh, it all seemed so easy. She never bothered to come back.
strange. But remember, the important thing is not your experiences, but how seriously you are dedicated. How you have gotten, mainly is, to what degree have you gotten rid of your ego? To what degree do you feel he is the doer, not you? And the other test, and a very important one, is how deeply do you love God? Sometimes when I see a movie, I always, when I see a movie, if I see people going through hard times, I think, well, I could be in that position. How would I take it? And I try to make myself affirm that I could take this. It's not me. It's not real. It doesn't exist. And watching Joan of Arc on the cross burning on her funeral pyre, I think, could I do that? Yes, I could. The funeral is, the fire is temporary. The pain is temporary. The bliss of the soul is permanent. But these, this makes movies very worth looking at. Whenever you see a hard experience, tell yourself, can I do that? If you can reach the point where you can mentally persuade yourself, yes, I could go through that and I would not be touched. So this is a good preparation for what may come in the future. Who knows what we will have to endure? But uh, don't ever let yourself get involved egoically. I've been to the dentist. I have to go to the dentist again. <laughs> anyway, um, I've had the dentist swapping, perspiring with sympathetic pain. And I just, uh, I've written music and worked out problems in my, a book that I was writing and thought about other things. It's not that I don't feel the pain, but it's secondary to what I'm doing, and so I don't pay any attention to it. Or I, I don't take Novocaine, but I have found, for example, when the pain was particularly intense, I felt that my consciousness was out here. And so this little thing that was happening to this one little body didn't really matter. So many, many little tricks of the mind. But it's very good to be able to think, what is the worst thing that could happen to me? Could I take it if it happened? To view it in a positive light. If people hate you, if they persecute you, they will do that. They do do that. It's just a part of life. It's a part of being dedicated to God. God doesn't smooth the path before you. He throws bam brambles in your way. He wants you to, and he wants to know if you love him. He wants to know that if nothing can take you away from him, and if you have that kind of love, then he will take you. But uh, the path is one of, yes, many persecutions, many pains, many tests. Don't be afraid of it. Everything is a dream. Nothing lasts. His bliss is always there. Yogananda was completely centered in the infinite. As he wrote in the poem Samhadhi, I, the cosmic sea, watch the little ego floating in me. Even a master requires enough ego to keep his body moving and active in this world. But such a person's true center lies by no means in his little body. I remember once walking with him at his desert retreat. He was deep in the spirit two or three times, as I told you a moment ago. I had actually supported his body 
in order to keep it from falling. He remarked to me one day, I am in all bodies. It is difficult for me to remember to keep this one body especially moving. In Los Angeles, I was told he sometimes walked up and down Main Street in a locale that contained many bars. He didn't say a word, but to me it is clear that he was centered in those people inside the bars, perhaps protecting them from those low astral entities which are, uh, which are always eager to possess people who are on the brink of unconsciousness. You know, I, when I came to the path, everything was new to me. I mean, just about literally everything. I had never studied the scriptures. I knew nothing about the Indian scriptures. I knew nothing, nothing, nothing. I was just sort of like this as people would tell me these different things. And there was one time where somebody was talking about possession by astral spirits. Now, my gosh, that's a weird thing. I've got to experience this myself. <laughs> well, I was sort of crazy in those days. Anyway, <coughs> I remembered, I can still see it, I was at this party in my dream. And all of a sudden, I had the uh, thought, I said, it's time for me to go and meet a disincarnate spirit. So I left the room, and I can still see the room I entered. It was all bare floorboards, darkness out of outside, and I stood in the middle of the room, and I said, all right, I want to know what this is all about. Come on. All of a sudden, the floorboards began to wave up and down, and I found myself being sucked out the window, and uh, I, I tried to fight back, but I found myself starting to go unconscious. And I thought, well, I don't want to play with this one. So I called, Master! All of a sudden, it stopped. And... Uh, I came back. Now, this is a funny sequel to it. I asked Master about it later. First of all, he asked me for further details. And I thought, well, he saved me at that moment. Doesn't he know? And I said, sir, don't you know? He said very impatiently, brusquely, he said, when you're one with God, you are God. Just like that. That's quite a statement to dash off brusquely like this. But... Uh, um, he said, uh, don't worry, these things come on the spiritual path. Don't give them any emphasis. But So I knew from experience that it, possession is a possibility. And it's very important never to go into that passive subconscious state. That's why meditation should be an active thing, not a passive thing. You don't just sort of passively sit there. And, because there are a lot of tramp souls around looking for a free ride. You know, if you've left your car unlocked with the keys in the ignition, who's going to get into that car? Only a thief. Honorable people don't. So don't, don't play with these things. They're quite serious. Anyway, um, he was walking up and down and trying to feel these people and give them energy, helping to save them that kind of thing. Many, many times people will murder, for example, and they won't remember what happened to them. They would be cases of possession where they didn't have anything to do with it. It was this soul through them that made them do that. They get 
of electric chair treatment. But it wasn't they who did it. They were just weak-minded enough to be open. So remember, there are influences. Master said also that thoughts are universally, not individually rooted. And it's very important to understand that your thoughts even are not really your own. They depend on the level of consciousness that you are on. I remember one time I was I suddenly fell into a mood. I'd been with Master just a few months, and uh, um, I remember I wanted to see him, and I didn't see him. And I, there was a, a bottle of water that was demanded for his kitchen, so I hastily preempted the job to myself and took the bottle up there. And Master was in the next room dictating, and he didn't pay any attention to me. And I, just like an immature boy, I, I said, he doesn't care about me. And I felt very moody and upset. And uh, I tried to get out of it. And the more you use your reason to work on your feelings, reason is moved by feelings, is directed by feelings. And the more my reason would tell me, yeah, that's the way things are. Nobody cares for nobody. That kind of thinking. Uh, but then I had enough distac this distance from myself to think, well, do you like this mood? And I thought, no, I don't like it. Then if we can't get out of it by reason, let's sit down and change our level of consciousness. You know, I put my mind here. It took only five minutes for me to completely change my awareness. When my energy was raised in the spine, suddenly I saw everything in different ways. I thought, of course he doesn't have time to stop every time somebody comes by. He's working on his letters and and uh, everything was completely different. So your moods depend upon your level of consciousness. But that level of consciousness has thoughts belonging to it. So on this level, all these negative thoughts come. On the upper level, positive thoughts come. And if you want inspiration, then don't think you can generate it. But open yourself to that higher inspiration. And there's no answer that cannot come to you if you will give that superconsciousness a chance. And if you're a poet, the inspirations you will get will be in terms of poetry. If you're a composer, they'll be given to you in terms of poetry, of music. If you're a mathematician, they'll be given to you in terms of uh, mathematical formulae or something. But you will find that every great discovery or invention is it owes its, its a success to attunement with that higher source of inspiration. So try always. <coughs> Don't try to be clever. Oh, let God work it out for you, and you'll be amazed at how it works out. Desirelessness was another strong trait in the Master. One time, James J. Lynn a wealthy disciple, wanted to buy him an overcoat and took him for that purpose into a men's clothing store. Yogananda saw one coat that appealed to him, but when he saw the price tag, he hastily looked elsewhere. The coat was very expensive. Mr. Lin said to him, I saw you looking at that one. Let me get it for you. Yogananda had to agree. The coat, Mr. To the coat, Mr. Lin 
added a matching hat. The master always felt awkward wearing this expensive overcoat. After some time, he prayed, Divine Mother, it's too good for me. Please take it away. Let's see the page. Yeah. Some days later, he entered a restaurant. The Divine Mother told him she would be taking it away that evening, so he emptied the buckets. <laughs> <laughs> when the meal was finished, he returned the rack to the rack where the coat had been hanging. To his relief, the coat was missing. But then he complained, Divine Mother, you forgot to take the hat. <laughs> Reminds me of a cartoon in Punch, two men at a restaurant, and one leans forward confidentially to the other and says, don't look now, but I think somebody's taking your coat. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. <coughs> You know, Master went into Radio City Music Hall, and he said, now that I've paid for my admission, I own this place. And so he went around, enjoyed his new possession, and when he'd enjoyed it enough and seen everything he wanted to, he gave it back to the management and left a free man. <laughs> so what he was saying with this story was that you can enjoy everything, you don't have to own it, but be f enjoy this world with a sense of freedom. Enjoy everything, but leave it to the m with the management when you leave it. <laughs> Don't take it with you. One, one day at Mount Washington, he came downstairs and saw a small group of us standing there waiting for him. Isn't it a warm day, he asked? We, knowing that he had it in mind to give us money, for a little ice cream, answered, Oh, it's not so warm, sir. Are you sure it isn't a little warm? <laughs> well, it is if you say so, sir. Finally, with decision, he concluded, I can't keep money and I won't. Here's a little money for ice cream. Go out and buy yourself some. It was so sweet. But the thing that meant most to me was his statement, I can't keep money and I won't. It's only a little, it was only a little money. In any case, it wasn't the money, but his statement that touched me so speech so deeply. I, sp I spent some of my own money for the ice cream that day in order to keep the bills he'd handed to me. Those bills now rest in, my, in the little museum in the hall above my home. Complete non-attachment was another characteristic of his. Toward the end of his life, he made plans to go to India. I was one of the people he wanted to take with him. Twice he had to cancel his plans. The last year, those plans were canceled permanently by his final exit from the body. The last year but one, I asked him, Sir, shall we be going to India this year? I'm not curious about these things, he replied. What Divine Mother wants, I do. Not curious about a trip to India, I was amazed. But I saw that in everything he was completely non-attached. There is a beautiful little story that I've told in this, uh, in this book about uh, his father bought him a motorcycle when he was old enough to drive it. And sometimes he and Sri Yukteswar would go bouncing through the streets, Sri Yukteswar in the sidecar, and they're 
robes flapping about them as if with kindred enthusiasm, you might say. And uh, Master became known jokingly as the motorcycle Swami. <laughs> but it was easily the most beautiful gift he'd ever been given. And he loved it. But one day he came out of his father's house and uh, he saw some neighbor looking at the motorcycle with great longing. And he said, do you like it? And the man said, oh, if only I had, I were able to own something like this. Master said, Master said, well, take it, it's yours. Well, how can you possibly give away something like this? No, I wouldn't be happy owning it, knowing that you wanted it. And he said, well, how much do you want, to, want me to pay for it? Master said, nothing, I'll just go in and get this little slip of ownership and give it to you, and it's yours. But that was the spirit, Master had. He one time had an esserange, which is like a sitar, but much smaller, string instrument. And uh, he loved to play it, but some one day somebody looked at it with uh, uh, great affection for it. Master just gave it away. He was completely free in himself. And so it is that we should be. The nature of a master is that to help us to become like that too. We need to develop those characteristics if we too are to find God. Now I thought I'd stop here and give you a chance to ask questions if you like. And uh, let me see. So any questions? You know, it wouldn't hurt to have the lights on so I can see you. Yeah. No questions? Yes. Do you have a favorite affirmation that you've been using lately? That's an interesting question. I don't affirm anything. I perhaps should, but I just... Uh, I just say, I love you. Any others? I liked the first one I got last week where somebody said, what's your favorite Shakespeare quote? And I yeah. told them, this above all to your own self be true. But then I liked better even, enter pursued by a bear. <laughs> <laughs> That was a stage direction, I think, in As You Like It. Anyway, one of the plays. <laughs> yes. Uh, I was curious about how uh, uh, Yogananda affects him physically with the uh, friends and disciples. He's curious about how Yogananda expressed affection physically with friends and disciples. Was he very physical? He didn't normally embrace people. Very rarely did he do so. But, you know, you could feel his love. I remember one time at the desert, I was leaving the room, and I reached the door. Well, I've had eye surgery, so I can see very clearly now, but in those days I couldn't. I was very short-sighted. So it wasn't the expression on his face. It was sort of a mist there. But uh, all of a sudden I felt just overwhelmed with love. And you didn't need a physical expression of that love. That, that kind of love is almost brought down by anything like an embrace or something. So 
He did with a smile, with he did with a few words. I remember I always had this feeling of self-doubt. And uh, just a few days before he left his body, he said to me one time when we were alone, you've pleased me very much. I want you to know that. And somehow it lifted a great weight off my heart. But he knew when to talk to the, uh, us in this way. It was more the feeling. And uh, I remember one time he was talking about uh, pouring f potholes, filling potholes in the driveway after heavy rain. I wasn't involved in that work. And so I was just sitting there meditating. And I just felt these waves of bliss coming over me. One difficulty I had with him was that in any group, he always talked to me. I wanted to close my eyes, but I couldn't because he was talking to me. But uh, anyway, I felt it in my heart. It was, I can't tell you what a thrill it was to be with him. I have to say, I never felt familiar. I was always in a sense of, with a sense of awe toward him. I knew that he was so great. This respect that he showed for me just made him all the greater. So, there were, as I say, it was more his spirit that reached out to us. Okay? Yes. Swami, how do you define a saint? You know, a saint can be defined in many ways because there are many levels of saints. In one very true saints, all a very one, one very true sense, you are all saints because you've dedicated your lives to God. Beyond that, a saint is one who, is the closer he comes to God, everything is relative. It's not as if you cross the door and suddenly flash. But a saint of a true kind, I asked Master, to what level must you have reached to uh, be called a master? And uh, he answered, you must have reached Christ consciousness. When you've attained that state, then you are a master. So a saint is anything up to that level. <coughs> he said to me one time, all of those who are with me have been saints from before. I think by with me, I think he meant uh, in tune with him, not just physically there. And I said, well, what about uh, those who don't seem all that saintly? <laughs> <coughs> and he said, well, some are fallen saints. And uh, then I said, I'm thinking of myself, sir. And he said, it's good to have neither a superiority nor an inferiority complex. That was all his answer. But uh, a saint is somebody who loves God. And I say, the more you love God, the more you are a saint. When you've reached that point where really nothing could shake you in your devotion to God, then you can call yourself more firmly a saint. But the falls on the path, they're a constant thing. You know, Judas... People think of Judas with opprobrium as uh, somebody who is the Satan incarnate, practically. Master said of him that uh, um, he was a prophet. And I was very surprised at this. And uh, 
I said, well, what do you mean? He said, oh, he'd have had to be, to be one of the twelve. And then he said, I knew him in this life. And of course, I was very interested in hearing the answer. And it turns out that he was a disciple of Ramakrishna. And I think it was Saravananda, and uh, who wrote the, the uh, life of Ramakrishna. And uh, he didn't say that, though. But I said, what was he like? And he said, always very much withdrawn. One time the disciples teased him about his attachment to money. And uh, uh, the guru said, don't, leave him alone. He'd been through enough suffering on that point. He didn't want money for himself, but he did spend a lot of energy trying to get money for Ramakrishna's wife to support him, support her after she left her body. And I think it was that that they were laughing at. But he received his liberation in this lifetime, 2,000 years. And you know, Dhirananda, who was Master's nemesis, he betrayed him again and again. But Master said in another three lifetimes he'll be liberated. So how can you judge? You just have to think, where am I on this path? Have I reached that point where I know that the only thing I want is God? And I would say that mentally it would be a help to build a bonfire every night and throw into that bonfire anything that might smack of being a desire or an attachment. Nothing is yours. You will find that the more you do that, the more you feel free in your heart. Finally, a saint is one who has no desire for anything except God. Any other questions? Yes. What is the biggest obstacle that prevents women from advancing spiritually and emotions. how can they overcome it? Emotions. <laughs> women tend to be more emotional, men altogether too rational. <coughs> and both are needed. But these emotions that make people, make women get all excited about things. Remember, anything that happens, don't, don't try to always smooth them out. So when things are great, don't make them very great. Just Okay, it's okay. When they go back, it's okay. Try to be even-minded and cheerful under all circumstances. And always beware of emotions, because emotions will always fool you. This is why I know Diamata said to me once, let's face it, women are more spiritual than men. And I thought, yeah, that's why all the avatars are women. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know why they all come as men, Maybe they just don't want, to, don't want to mess with those messy periods. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but he said the spiritual path is more difficult for men, but those who get there become very great. And uh, it all balances itself out. I have seen uh, with an impersonal view that in life, generally speaking, women are more confident than men. This may cause a great deal of resistance and distress among men, but it is true. And yet, if you look at fur it further, all the people who are the most confident in every field are men. Even the field of, that women are supposed to excel in, like 
sewing or cooking or things like that. So it all balances out, but in a very strange way. I'm not going to go into it further, but it's, of course, an endlessly fascinating subject. The main point is that there is no difference, essentially. We're all equally children of God. And in one lifetime, we're men. In another type lifetime, we're women. So don't get excited. <laughs> okay, any other questions? Yes. Uh, you mentioned that you put on a facade to ad uh, adjust to a culture that you didn't feel comfortable in, and she also comes from another culture. What advice would you give to adjust to the culture? That Where are you from? Poland. Poland. Well, here I am from Romania, <laughs> and I had that problem. I still have it. I don't really feel completely American, but uh, when I'm in myself, People are people, and you don't, you can't easily adjust to a, it is a very different culture, Eastern Europe and America, but uh, my difficulty has been how to present these teachings in such a way that Americans can relate to them, and uh, I have to admit, I, I, I feel even a stranger in this world. There isn't any country where I really feel at home. And we're all in that condition. But I was born in Romania, but my goodness, I remember one time when the war was coming and I was, we used to play football, soccer, in a nearby field. And one day, they, I was their friend. There was one boy who came from across Boulevard Bustein, and it was a slum. They had so little money that they couldn't even afford window panes. They had to cover their windows with newspapers. And I felt very sorry for him. And I used to give him my toys and do everything I could for him. And one time these boys locked me in a courtyard and then began kicking a football at me, trying to work up the courage to attack me. And I just threw the football down like this, batted it away, and stood my ground and didn't, didn't uh, show any fear. And I didn't feel fear, but uh, finally they let me out and decided that the afternoon's entertainment was uh, perhaps a bust. <laughs> but you know, I went home and I just wept my heart out. Here these dear friends were rejecting me just because I was an American. And why? It's painful. The only answer finally is to say I don't belong anywhere really. I'm a child of God's, and in fact, Jesus Christ put it this way, who is my mother and father and brother and sister, save those who love God. So don't ever feel I belong here. You don't. You could be on other planets. In fact, I asked Master once, are the people who are here on earth now going to be reincarnated on earth in Satya Yuga? He said, oh, no. He said, I've, I, I t I've told you many times, there are many planets to go to. He said that um, 
if, if they kept coming back to the same planet, and this was a slightly scary thing he added, they would find out too soon. In other words, God doesn't want them to find out. It doesn't seem fair. <laughs> <laughs> and yet he wants us to have to use our own discrimination and not have the facts pushed so blatantly in our faces that we know that it's so. So, on the one hand, as Master put it also, God eats people. <laughs> on the other hand, there's this part in him that loves people and wants to draw him to him. You know, the image of Kali, it's a very interesting one. She's Mother Nature, and the way they depict her is uh, not very pleasant. There she is with four arms. Well, one is procreation, preservation, destruction, and offering salvation to those who love her. <clears throat> but then you look at the image, and you think, is that lovable? There she is, doing her dance of creation with her hair all over creation. That's what the hair going out means. She wears a garland of skulls, and that means she's omnipresent in all minds. But why skulls, then? Why not heads? Well, because life is temporary. Then um, she's dancing, and suddenly she puts her foot on her prostrate husband's breast and stops. And her Shiva's uh, lying prostrate there, and it looks as if she's sort of been doing a victory dance in some way. And her, her tongue is lolling out as if in bloodlust. And you have to say it's not a very attractive image. But the meaning of it is that the dance of vibration, of cosmic vibration, ceases when it touches the spirit. And the tongue out is what really it, it is based on this simple thought. When you make a mistake and you're a little embarrassed, you, it, it, you, you um, what do you do? Bite your tongue a little bit, isn't it true? Universal gesture, I think. Anyway, it's certainly true in India. And uh, so that's all it really means, but they've exaggerated it, and everything becomes an exaggeration. But we saw a movie last night in which Master is shown, and he's worshiping Kali, and he sees her, and she says, you're so beautiful. Oh, beautiful? <laughs> it isn't beautiful. You know, the images of God in India are deliberately not beautiful. When the saints see God, it's not that which they see. They're deliberately not beautiful to keep you from thinking that this is God. God is far beyond that. It's a symbol. You know, Jagannath, the image of Krishna in the Puri temple, in a Jagannath temple, he has his arms truncated. The idea is to show that you can't perfect something that is infinite. It's, in, it's not perfectible. And so always realize that any depiction will be imperfect. But when Ram Prashad, who was a great devotee of Kali, one time he was out in his garden and he was singing to Kali. And his daughter came and was playing with him and uh, as he was fixing his post there in the fence. And she said, who are you singing to, Daddy? And he said, I'm singing to my Divine Mother, but she's very naughty. She won't come. I call her and call her and she won't come. And the daughter, laughing, said, if she won't come, why do you keep calling her? And he ran away. And later he came into the house and he mentioned to his wife that, his, uh, that their daughter had, had been playing with him. 
And the wife says, wife said, that's not possible. She's on the other side of town. You can ask her when she comes. And when the daughter came home that night, he asked her, weren't you with me in the, in the garden here? He said, no, Daddy, you can ask anybody. I was on the other side of town. And then he realized that it was the Divine Mother who had come in the form of his daughter. So don't think that those forms of Kali are the real forms. When Master saw the Divine Mother at the uh, at Christmas meditations, and he said, oh, you were so beautiful. And he said, don't go, don't go. But it was so inspiring to hear him talk like that. Because the Divine Mother is, uh, everything you could imagine is beautiful, that would be she. So never think that those forms are anything but symbolic of certain ideals and principles. And, uh, okay, any other questions? Yes. Slow down, slow down. Uh, when you said that, Master, you would feel waves of bliss from him, did that happen very often? That was a particularly intense time, but I always felt wonderful around him. And more and more in attunement with him, mind you, when he, his being gone doesn't mean very much. I feel it more and more. Then her part two was, did others in an audience feel that? I don't know. I didn't go around checking. <laughs> now, did you feel it? <laughs> and the third question. <clears throat> um, how, how do you become then um, more perceptive as an individual when, say, like when, you know, when you would feel waves of bliss from him? How then do you become more perceptive of those waves of bliss? I'd say that the more <coughs> you don't have desires for substitute bliss. Like I remember he said, you have to satisfy all desires. I said, even for an ice cream cone? Thinking I'd have him there. He said, oh yes. Even for an ice cream cone. You have to get rid of all of them. But the freer you are for, of any desire for outward fulfillment, the more this bliss, you don't have to add it to what you have. You realize that's what you are. It's in your own nature. Okay? There was a question over here, yeah. Swamiji, are you still uh, thinking of recording more songs? You know, I am thinking of it. Is David Eby around? <coughs> David Eby here? No, sir, he's not here. Okay. Well, um, if and when he's here, I, I would like to. Today I finished working on the book. Give me a few days and then I'll... <laughs> <laughs> Stephen's been trying to... We have a question from uh, somebody watching online. And they ask, what was the most important lesson uh, Yogananda taught you, especially from the initial path? Uh, someone online asks, what was the most important, quest uh, important thing Master taught you especially when you were new on the path? To love God. I had tried to find truth by intellect. Fortunately, because I was honest with myself, 
I reached that point in my, into my intellectual questing where I realized that the only thing that made sense was God's consciousness. I remember I went out into the night outside Charleston, South Carolina, and I had reached that point. I had tried to find truth. I was looking for truth. I tried to find it through science or politics or arts or different things. And all of them had sort of, they, I realized at the end, I'll never find what I'm looking for through these things if I leave God out of the equation. I had tried to avoid God because the church that I went to didn't give me what I considered an honorable picture of God. Sort of a stuffy old man with a long beard, judgmental, just waiting for people to make mistakes so he could clap them into hell for eternity. It just didn't, didn't attract me. But I found that in every line that I sought, it led to the conclusion that there, it has to be a God for me to find the answer that I'm looking for. And then I looked back through history because I wanted with all my heart to help uplift all humanity. And I thought that uh, without God, how can I? The only people in history who have really had a significant impact upon history, a long-range impact, are the people like Buddha, Jesus Christ, and people of that level. So finally one night I decided I just had to confront this issue in myself. And so I walked out into the night. I was in the countryside, and I was thinking, if there is a God, what must he be like? And I thought, well, he can't be an old man with a beard. He can't be like a policeman up there or a judge. But then what is asking, making me ask this question? Well, the fact that I'm conscious. Well, in that case, where did I get this consciousness from? I didn't think that my brain could produce that level of consciousness. I didn't think I could be programmed to think this way. It was something coming from another level. And so I decided that there has to be only one explanation. God has to be consciousness. Not just conscious, consciousness. And then in that case, I have to be a part of that consciousness. And the reason I'm asking this question is because I am a part of that consciousness. And then I remembered from my apartment in Charleston, going out and looking at the beach there, the shore, and the waves would come in, and there were rocks on the shore. And where the rocks were farther apart, there was more water able to come through. And where they were close together, very less water was able to come through. So I thought then it depends upon how open I am to him. And I find that there are some times, if I've been drinking, for example, I may feel less aware. But there are other times when I'm more aware. And the important thing is that I open myself to that awareness. And I thought, well, in that case, there's only one purpose in my life. And that's to seek God. And... I will devote my life then. If that's the purpose of my life, I will devote my life to seeking him. And I remember I came back to the apartment and the boys were laughing, my roommates were laughing at me for being so serious. But I was, from that moment on, the direction of my life changed. And I 
was desperately seeking this one answer. And it was it was intellect that drew me to that. And fortunately, I used my thinking rightly because I had no agenda. I just wanted to know the truth. But normally speaking, intellect is not the way to go. And uh, um, when I met Master, he urged me to develop devotion. And I found that the more devotion I felt, the sweeter I felt. And I realized that devotion is really the only way. Had I had that devotion, I would have found him quickly. But because I didn't, it took me longer. Still, I was pretty young at the time. I was only 21 at that time on this experience in Charleston. And at 22, I came to Master. So that's the answer to your question. Okay. How do you feel Master's work in the World Brotherhood colony uh, will relate to other intentional communities in the world? You know, I was talking to that, about that just the other day. In fact, last Thursday, somebody asked me the question. I think what we have to do is think not only of Ananda communities, but of a community's movement. As I said last Thursday, the uh, main thing that made it very difficult to start Ananda, and if I weren't so hard-headed, I don't think I'd have ever succeeded. But um, people would say, let's go this way, let's go that way, let's go. We needed to come to a point where we, we had enough self-definition to say, this is what we're all about. Once we reached that point, which took a few years, then it was much easier to start communities elsewhere. The other communities have not faced that problem. Because we can always say, I know that your way may be good, but this is how we do things. Now, if any new community were to form, it doesn't have to be an Ananda community. But Master said this idea would spread like wildfire. I don't expect them all to be Ananda communities. But if we can have a brotherhood of communities so that all of them f tune into this system, even though they don't necessarily follow our teachings, they will find it easier. You know, in the beginning, thousands of people tried to start communities. Virtually all of them failed within 30 days. And uh, we're probably, well, certainly one of the few, maybe the only one that has really thrived uh, and survived that, that period. But in the future, it will be much, much easier if every community could say, this is what we do. Once that's clear, others say, take it or leave it. And uh, if we can have this movement, let's say, of communities, I think that will be the most important first step. I'd like to think that Master was their guru, etc., but first of all, communities. Well, here it is, 9 o'clock. I think we'll call it quits for tonight. Thank you all very much. <laughs>